Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories this week was Britney Spears. Speaking out for the first time about the conservatorship that has controlled her life for 13 years, she pleaded with the judge to end it and detailed how over the years she's been forced to work against her will, be drugged, and prevented from removing a birth control device so she could have more kids. Spears also mentioned that she wants the conservatorship to be ended without another psychological evaluation. For more on why the path to free Britney might still be a long one, we'll speak to Lisa Richwine, entertainment reporter at Reuters, who was on the scene in the courtroom. It really felt like she was just unloading to the court. I mean, she had not spoken publicly and made clear she wanted everything to be public. One of the lawyers suggested that the proceedings be closed to the public and the media, and she said, no, I want this to be public. I want everybody to hear this. And she just spoke very quickly for more than 20 minutes, just on and on and on, that this happened to me and this and this, and and then I've been lying with what I've been, you know, showing the world, you know, on Instagram, she's been saying, oh, I'm happy, everything is great, and really, this is what I've been going through, and... She spoke so fast that twice the the judge asked her to slow down because the court reporter couldn't keep up with her. Yeah, uh, reading through her, reading through her testimony, I mean, she sounded exasperated at times, like she couldn't get it out fast enough. You know, and she made mention multiple times that you know she talked to them before and she didn't feel like she was heard, and this was that opportunity to to get it all out. Yeah, and she, I mean, she really did. She she threw in a lot of details of a lot of different incidents. And, you know, at the end said to the judge, I wish I could just keep talking to you. I, you know, I have so much to say. And, you know, clear, clearly made her case heard and, you know, her side of the story. Yeah, she's pleading for the judge to end her conservatorship that's run by uh, her father. It's kind of a two-pronged thing. It's you know, her, her person and the estate. So, and they really control her entire life there. Let's talk a little bit more about the testimony. There was a lot of focus on medications that she's been given, things that she feels obviously she doesn't need to take, therapies. She said she, you know, in training, in rehearsing for some of her shows, you know, she's kind of said, I didn't want to do these dance moves or, or certain things. And then they put her on things like lithium and, and really just messed with her head in that sense. Yes, um, that that is what she told the court and how she feels. She clearly feels like these things were forced on her and that she didn't have a choice. She was afraid. She she was um, afraid of how her father would react, you know, and afraid legally that documents were put in front of her and that they were scary and she would just sign them because she didn't know what else to do. And actually told the judge yesterday that, that she didn't know previously that she could petition to have the conservatorship ended. And that, that, that now that she knows that, that is clearly what she wants. Yeah, I mean, she had a court-appointed lawyer before this. So that was one of the other things she said, you know, I, I want to get maybe new representation. Tell us a little bit more about this conservatorship. And uh, she's been on it, uh, I guess, for 13 years now. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how that works. Well, it started back in 2008. And, you know, there was a very public troubling time that she had where she shaved her head and damaged a paparazzi's car and her finances, her finances were not doing great. And, and that was when her father stepped in and this conservatorship was put in place. And 
early in that uh, time, she, she said that it was a help to her and that she got her life back together. And, and she did. She released another album. She went on tour. She toured for 10 years and played a very successful residency in Vegas. You know, the idea behind the conservatorship is that, you know, you're, prote- you're protecting the person. Somebody who cares about the person is protecting them from mismanaging their finances or their health care, that they, they just can't make proper decisions or they're subject to undue influence from outside people. And, you know, certainly if you're a famous person with a lot of money, that would always be a concern. Um, and, you know, as, again, Brittany said at the beginning that that was helpful. But, you know, now she says, I'm, I'm, I've worked, I've earned millions of dollars. You know, clearly I'm a functioning adult. And, you know, this just seems ridiculous to her at this point that she needs this kind of oversight. Yeah, she came back to that multiple times, uh, you know, and it's been true for her whole life, really. I'm the moneymaker. I'm doing all this stuff, putting roofs over people's heads and all that. This isn't working in the present way. And, you know, conservatorships a lot of times are meant for people with serious disability, dementia, who really can't uh, take care of themselves. So, you know, she's making that push, saying, I'm an adult. I've changed. Uh, Let's end this. There was a statement, I guess, that was read by, uh, not by her father, but it was from her father, what did, what did he have to say about all of this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after she spoke, and I think everybody was really stunned by it, the attorney representing her father asked the judge to recess for a few minutes. And after about 20 minutes, she came back and read a statement from Jamie Spears, her father, that basically said that he was sorry to hear that she's struggling and in pain and that he loves his daughter very much and misses her. So, th- so that's, you know, all, all we have heard from that side um, <laughs> yeah. at this point. So the next steps, obviously, this is a very complicated situation. You know, she's pleading for herself. Obviously, I want out of this. It's not so simple. You know, one of the themes she kept going back to as well throughout her testimony is that I want the conservatorship to end, but I don't want to be evaluated psychologically again. You know, she she has a trauma from going through it. So uh, that's one of the things she kept pleading for. But that's that might be a problem, you know, to get out of this. I mean, it might it might seem logical that she has to go through some of these tests just to to prove that. Right. And yeah, it will it, it will probably be a, a lengthy process from here. I mean, the next step will be that she should have she should file a petition with the court if she wants to and the conservatorship. And it, it'll be up to the judge as to how that proceeds. And in California, the burden is on the person the conservative the person who is under the conservatorship to yeah. to prove that they don't need protection anymore because you know the worst thing from the judge's point of view would be that oh i remove it and then something horrible happens and you know you know she and you realize that she did need the protection normally what happens is the court will start by sending an independent investigator to talk with her and uh you know, again, all, all sides will weigh in that Jamie Spears, the father and probably her mother will will give, you know, their perspectives on all this. Um, so there'll be a lot for the judge to take into consideration what the family yeah. wants, what the independent investigator wants, um, her, one of her co-conservators. Now, everybody will get to weigh in and it'll it'll be a lengthy process. Yeah. Back in 2016, there was a court investigator who went and you know he wrote up his report, said that uh, this has become an oppressive and controlling tool against her. Uh, uh, but at that time, they said that this is probably still in her best interest to be under that. So, you know, in the court of public opinion, it seems like she has a lot of momentum behind her with all this. But but that process is long to get out of this. Uh, as I mentioned, you were there in the court, so you were able to see everything inside and out. I know she had a bunch of uh, supporters outside. What was that scene like? 
she did. A bunch of uh, fans dress up in pink, and some of them had pigtails, and they carry these signs that say, you know, hashtag free Britney. And, you know, it kind of started out as something that everybody thought was a little silly. And, you know, there was a documentary that came out this year that shed some light on her situation. And really, I mean, the fans definitely feel vindicated that, they, that their suspicions were right, that, that Britney was not happy and feels like she's being, you know, controlled too much at this point. But um, yeah, they were, you know, it was, it was probably about a hundred fans, I would say. And, uh, you know, they were, they, they were thrilled that, that she finally got to, you know, speak what her story right. and, you know, put it, put it out into the public. Lisa Richwine, entertainment reporter at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also this week, we had a pair of Supreme Court decisions involving students. On Wednesday, they handed down a student free speech ruling that sided with Brandy Levy, the cheerleader who in 2017 posted a profane Snapchat post while off campus after she didn't make the varsity cheer squad. She was suspended from the cheer program for one year for that post. The justices ruled eight to one that the punishment did violate her First Amendment rights. For more on the court's first major student free speech case since 2007, We'll speak to Bianca Kilantan, education reporter at Politico. The decision largely says that the First Amendment broadly limits public schools' ability to regulate off-campus speech, especially delivered through social media. This was something that school districts had been arguing is that they actually needed those ability to regulate off-campus speech, especially during the pandemic when school was like shoved online and the lines between off-campus and on-campus were blurred by this whole year. So the high court actually left the door open to educators to protect students by regulating messages that are highly disruptive. So possibly bullying or threats, that sort of uh, speech is still able to be looked at. And that's kind of one of the major parts of this, too, is how disruptive the actions were in the decision. That's part of what they centered on. They said it, this really wasn't a big deal. They talked about it for five or 10 minutes and maybe disrupted an algebra class for a little moment. But it wasn't a, that huge disruptor where the school cheerleading team couldn't keep operating, all that stuff. And that's why they ruled in favor of the cheerleader in this case. And Justice Breyer, you know, said the school district went way too far in trying to punish uh, Levy for basically a fairly mundane post. You know, she said, F this, F that. And then later on today, she said, you know, I was a frustrated teenager. This is what we do. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. you know, she was very glad that they protected her speech and her future classmates speech also. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Uh, the student here, she was, I think, 14 at the time. She was a sophomore in high school. In the time that it took for this to get resolved, she's already graduated high school and moved on beyond that. Uh, so, you know, she's this is far beyond her already. Definitely. And I think this was really heard in oral arguments. Brett Kavanaugh was actually talking about how it's really hard to overestimate the significance of not making the varsity team, especially since you only get four years of this and she was denied at least one year fully. So um, he really thought that this was super important to these kids' lives, especially Levy's. And I think that probably contributed to him joining that decision as well. Did they say anything about if this was an overreaction, the being banned from the cheer squad for a year? Did they mention any of that? You know, Justice Thomas, who dissented, he was the one in the eight to one. He thought that the justices had been colored by their feeling that 
this may have been an overreaction by the schools. But overall, you know, the opinion still rules in favor of Brandy Levy. But the school districts also see this as a win. I talked to the National School Boards Association, and they said that they're glad that the high court clarified that the schools do have some ability to regulate off-campus speech. The Third Circuit had originally said that there is a really hard-line approach where you cannot at all regulate off-campus speech outside of the classroom. So they're glad that this has been, you know, like a less harsh regulation on this because it is so broad. This is the first major student free speech case since 2007. What are we hearing about how this is going to impact that going forward? As you mentioned you know earlier, the online portion of this is such a huge component now, and you can be off campus and uh, post something and still be held accountable for it. So what does this do for that part of the conversation going forward? For that part of the conversation, it seems the school districts are glad that they still have the ability to protect or to regulate things like hate speech or bullying or harassment. You know, there's been an uptick in that sort of thing since the creation of social media. And, all, you know, the majority of kids are on social media nowadays. So I believe that school districts are glad that there is this hedging where they can have that power to regulate that sort of speech to that extent. However, the Supreme Court did say that they're going to have, you know, a burden to prove that there's something wrong with speech related to religion or, or politics off campus. So they really want to ensure that kids have the ability to, you know, discuss these things freely and have free speech when it comes to talking about religion and politics and that schools aren't regulating that speech. So I think we might see some issues around that in the future or future cases around that. But largely that this was a rule that solved both sides. It gave Brandy Levy what she needed and also gave the school districts what they needed. Yeah. And in the case of what she actually put out there on Snapchat, F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything, you know, in concurring opinion, Justice Samuel Alito said, hey, they're expressing their thoughts and sentiments. Even if others find it upsetting, you can't suppress that. Yeah. And, you know, she wasn't directly targeting anyone either. Yeah, was, that's which an is, important distinction, you know, part of this. Mm hmm. So, that, you know, she's not targeting the school. She is making a criticism of the school. And so that speech is protected. Bianca Kilantan, education reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously against the NCAA and limits on academic-related benefits for student-athletes. With this ruling, colleges may offer greater benefits such as graduate student scholarships, internships, computer equipment, and more. For more on what this means for the movement to increase compensation for student-athletes, We'll speak to Ben Strauss, sports and media reporter at The Washington Post. I think it's important to sort of say what, uh, what this is and what this isn't, right? So what it isn't is, you know, a ruling that says Alabama and Ohio State can pay a quarterback $100,000 next year. It also isn't a ruling that says anything about college athletes going on Instagram and, and making money off their followers and as influencers. It's a really, really narrow ruling that says the NCAA can't make rules that prohibit perks related to education for athletes. And so we're talking about things like laptops or a postgraduate internship that a player might want to do. Schools can pay for that kind of stuff. So you might say that doesn't sound like a very big deal. In fact, it, it, it is pretty significant, you know, because of some other reasons. And one of them is this is nine to nothing on the Supreme Court, you know, polarized country, polarized court, a unanimous decision essentially saying that the NCAA's amateurism rules do not 
you know, hold up in court, they're not legal, is a big deal. And the second part is, you sort of mentioned NIL. There are 20 to 30 states that have passed laws that uh, will allow players to, to make money in various forms. Again, you know, commercials, sponsorships, just making money off their own social media followings that are scheduled to go into effect, some of them as soon as July 1st. And so this Supreme Court ruling will only, um, there's nothing to slow those down, will only sort of uh, push the momentum forward for these sorts of things, you know, and potentially opens the NCAA up for more lawsuits down the road that would be for player compensation and, you know, for players to sue and say, you can't prohibit schools from paying us. So it's both narrow in some senses, but also has some pretty good implications in, in some of the larger senses. Yeah, let's focus on that a little bit, because there was a concurring opinion that Brett Kavanaugh wrote that kind of alluded to that, basically saying that the NCAA is going to have some trouble in the future defending that policy that they can't be compensated. And we all know the NCAA colleges themselves, obviously, they make a ton of money off of these athletes that don't get compensated. So there's been this ongoing fight to help them make money during that time. But tell us what Brett Kavanaugh wrote in this. So this was probably one of the more surprising things that happened. I think the unanimity of it, 9 nothing, And then also Brett Kavanaugh's really fiery, withering, concurrent opinion that basically said, you know, we talked about this being a very narrow ruling. Brett Kavanaugh wrote that if this had been a, a more broad case, if somebody had brought a case that said, can schools pay players directly? You know, Brett Kavanaugh wrote that he is fairly skeptical that the NCAA's legal defense could hold up. And I think, you know, if you're a plaintiff lawyer, if you're a college athlete, you know, current, former, who has read the uh, concurrent opinion by Brett Kavanaugh, I think you're sort of salivating. And I think you're going to see some follow-up lawsuits based on what Kavanaugh wrote. And we're going to really test to see what the NCAA's defense is in the face of another lawsuit that really threatens to be a sea change in the way college sports works. Where did everybody fall in this? Obviously, player advocate organizations that were applauding this decision. Where did the schools stand on this? Well, the schools are the NCAA. So I think we, a lot of times, you know, refer to the NCAA as sort of this independent institution that, that decrees various things. But, but it is important to remember that Ohio State and Alabama and Notre Dame, and these are the schools that are the voting body of the NCAA. And so schools have really been fighting, you know, these changes about name and image and likeness and, you know, economic rights for athletes. The NCA is sort of, you know, like they're, you know, the, the figurehead that, that enforces some of these rules and ends up being the public face of it. The NCA released a statement that said, you know, we are happy that the Supreme Court reinforced that, you know, that the, the, they can set limits on some things and, and that you can really delineate between education-related expenses and non-education-related right. expenses because, again, the case that was brought was very specifically related to education-related expenses. Yeah. And so, you know, the NCA can sort of point to, you know, this being a very narrow ruling. They can point to the narrowness, whereas, you know, advocates for compensation and more rights for athletes can sort of point to the broader implications. Ben Strauss, sports and media reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.